All right, we're going to dive into the word together at the cross part two. Before we even jump in, let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity just to be alive today. We cannot take that for granted. And so we confess that it's in you that we live and move and have our very existence, Lord. Uh, The scripture that was read for us, that Paul, he's talking about not glorying in anything except the cross. God, I pray that that would be our experience. That we would fix our eyes on Jesus at the cross and find our greatest boast, our greatest glory, our greatest sense of significance. Lord, it's our desire to behold Jesus and to be changed. You know, we have this on our banner, the vision statement is to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. Lord, that's not just something that we kind of, you know, grunt our way to. Lord, it happens as we behold your love. We love because you first loved us. And so today, please, let that divine cause and effect take place in our hearts. Let that experience of conversion take place in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the family say, amen, amen. All right, let's go to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is where we are going to fix our attention. This sermon series, At the Cross, what we're trying to do is just come to the cross, look to Jesus, behold infinite, unfathomable love, and let that change and transform us. And especially as we're kind of making our way to Resurrection Weekend next weekend, um, I hope and pray that even in your own time, you're taking it upon yourself to be reflective, to think about the ways that, uh, that the Holy Spirit wants to walk you through the experience of that Passion Week. But uh, today we're going to the Gospel of Luke, where what we're wanting to do is we're beholding Jesus at the cross, specifically through the things that he says on the cross. All right, so this time we're in the Gospel of Luke. This is chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Looking at the red letters of Jesus on the cross, we noticed last time Matthew and Mark didn't have very many. (laughs) Matthew and Mark didn't have a whole lot of description of what Jesus said, but more of what was said to him or about him. This time, Luke actually includes quite a bit. So if you're there in Luke 23, go ahead and say amen. Okay. Luke 23, and you'll start kind of glancing through. Maybe you're already reading, getting familiar with where you are in this chapter. But these red letters in Luke's account, really what they're going to highlight for us is that Jesus speaks to us from the cross in four different voices, if you will, in four different ways. And so voice number one is the voice of Jesus the prophet. Jesus the prophet. You're there in verse, let's start in verse 26. Luke 23, verse 26, the Bible says, Now, as they led him away, speaking of Jesus, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. The reality is that this did not take place, even though the the trial was by night and, uh, you know, many of the the decision-making, much of the decision-making process was taken kind of under the cloak of darkness. By now, on Friday, on Friday morning of this Passion Week, all eyes are on Jesus. What is going on here? 
In verse 27, it says there's a great multitude of the people, but Luke is particular to point out that there are a lot of women as well. Women who are mourning and lamenting. In fact, the word for mourn, it carries this idea of being severed. This idea of being cut to the heart with such sorrow and tragedy and loss that they can't help but but groan with audible noises. They're lamenting. They're crying out over this devastating sight of Jesus being led to the cross. Probably for many of them, the last time they saw Jesus in public was when he was coming in to Jerusalem on a donkey. And people weren't crying over sorrow. They were crying out sounds of praise. Hosanna to the son of David. Laying out palm branches, thinking victory. Finally, the king is here. And so these women are mourning. They are lamenting. And the Bible says in verse 28, it says, but Jesus turning to them. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the red letters yet, but there's just so much significance here. Jesus turned to them. I hadn't noticed this until I was studying it this last week, that Jesus turned to them. You see, in my mind's eye, as I kind of play out um, this story of Jesus on the way to Calvary, I think of Jesus kind of whispering this under his breath, you know, kind of having more, you know, bigger fish to fry. He's got something else to get to, but he just kind of passes along and said, but the Bible says that he turned to them. In other words, he redirected his attention. He turned to them and gave him individual attention. And the the words that he says are terms of endearment. He says, daughters. Daughters of Jerusalem. The only other time that I know of where Jesus addresses someone as daughter was also in the midst of a great multitude. Maybe you remember he was kind of pressing his way on his way to Jairus' house to help his daughter. But in the midst of this thronging crowd, there's someone who reaches for the hem of his garment. You remember this story? This woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, gone to doctors, found no help, but only grew worse. And she instantly experiences the healing power of Jesus. And she just wants to kind of, you know, kind of fade into the shadows and get on her merry way. But Jesus stops the crowd. Who touched me? Disciples are shaking, you know, scratching their heads, shaking. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. And this woman is probably trembling with fear at this point. And so to assure her, Jesus turns to her It says, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's a term of endearment. Like, hey, you're part of the family. And these women who feel it so devastated as they are part of this multitude, they are mourning and lamenting, and he addresses them individually with such tender concern. Daughters. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, as if to encompass all the women of Jerusalem. Why? Because in his mind, the voice of the prophet... He's thinking of the fate of Jerusalem. That's where his mind is. It's incredible. His mind isn't on his pain. His mind is on others' sorrow. Daughters of Jerusalem. He says, do not weep for me, but weep for who? Weep for yourselves and for your children. This is the the counsel. This is the instruction. I don't know about you, but when you're in the midst of pain, what are you, what's coming out of your mouth? 
right? When you're in the midst of pain, it could be frustration. It could be, you know, grumbling that has no words. But Jesus here is thinking about others' well-being. And you'll find the trend throughout the rest of the red letters of this chapter to be the same. And so he gives counsel. He gives instruction. Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Redirect your sorrow of heart, not just to my physical suffering, but your spiritual apathy. That's what he's saying. What's really to be mourned over isn't the fact that I'm being abused, but it's the heart condition that even allowed for this to happen. The rejection. In other words, Jesus speaking as the voice, or with the voice of a prophet, he's calling us to self-examination and repentance. That's what he's doing. This prophetic voice continues in verse 29. He gives more of the rationale behind this idea of seeking repentance. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Again, he's speaking with the voice of a prophet. This call to repentance has the future in view. So what kind of future is Jesus envisioning? What kind of days are coming? Well, not the greatest of days, right? I mean, these are days in which things, that, things are completely turned upside down. The, the highest of joys, childbearing, would be considered to be a blessing to be without in those days. These are days of extreme adversity that people will seek to try to run from, even asking for hills and mountains to fall on them. And then in verse 31, this prophetic enigma, almost a riddle that he shares, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Probably a reference to himself as the green wood. A green, green tree, a budding tree, a tree that is in full flower, vibrant, full of life. He's saying that, man, if sin results in this kind of tragedy while I am here, while the green wood is able to give life, man, imagine what will be the results of sin when I'm not present. Man, if this is what the judgment against sin looks like and it's falling upon the Son of God, imagine, imagine what it would be like to actually bear that judgment yourself. That's why Jesus is calling for repentance. Don't, don't weep for me. Weep over your own sin. Weep over your own hardened hearts today. That's the voice of the prophet. In light of sin's trajectory, where it will lead, weep and sorrow over the state of our rebellious hearts. Do you hear the voice of the prophet Jesus? Yeah. He doesn't just speak with a prophet. He also, or with the voice of a prophet, he also speaks with the voice of a mediator. And I'm so thankful for that. That the call to repentance is immediately, immediately followed by a plea for our forgiveness. This is Jesus, the mediator, right? Let's go a little bit further now. Uh, let's just keep reading. In verse 32, it says, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they do. Again, this is Jesus in his infinite mercy. Hear the infinite mercy of Jesus in this prayer. I mean, first, he starts by saying, Father, addressing God as his Father. He's still certain of his relation to God. He knows who he is, and he knows who God is to him. Even though every other voice around seems to rail against it, and even doubt it, ridicule it. And then his prayer, Father, forgive them. A prayer for forgiveness. Forgiveness is release, remission, sending away sin and its debt. That's what Jesus is praying for. As as Roman soldiers are piercing his hands and feet to the cross, he is praying for their forgiveness. Again, you imagine your times of pain, and those are not the things that come out of my mouth when I'm hurting or being hurt. But this is the heart of God, right? This forgiveness, yes, he's praying for those who are responsible for his crucifixion, for those immediately in his proximity. But I would say that that prayer of forgiveness, that plea of mercy, encompasses all who are responsible for Jesus on the cross. That's me. That's you. But in these red letters, Jesus is praying for us. Amen. Amen. He is that high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And because of that, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Again, the heart of Jesus, so other-centered. And, uh, it, you know, it reminds me of, I think it's Matthew chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you hear the red letters, for others, for others' salvation, That's the abundance of Jesus' heart right there. So the voice of the prophet, the voice of the mediator, he also speaks from the cross. Get this, with the voice of a king. With the voice of a king. Let's keep reading. The Bible says here in verse 35, the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. As if that were his crime. (laughs) And then in verse 39, Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, do what? Save yourself and us. This is really interesting. Again, we're going to get to the red letters in verse 43. But I want you to hear that this voice of the king is preceded by all sorts of voices that are denying his kingship. In fact, the word that's used is not, one of them is sneered, another is mocked. But then in verse 39, it says, the one that was next to him on the cross blasphemed him in this way. And I don't know, you know, when you think of blasphemy, maybe you're thinking of some of the technical uh, definitions of taking on the prerogatives of God. You know, claiming equality with God or even claiming to, to forgive sins. But maybe... 
Maybe blasphemy encompasses more than that. Maybe blasphemy is so undercutting the identity of Jesus that you assume salvation can be taken upon yourself. Did you hear that? The blasphemy that came out of, your mouth, or out of the thief's mouth was save yourself and us. I mean, there's, there's a little bit more to blasphemy here, and that's, uh, maybe that's bonus material, sorry. That, let's get to the red letters here. But the trend of the reviling, all that mockery and stuff, it's interrupted by a different kind of tone of voice. Where is it? In verse 40. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then in verse 42, the thief, instead of rebuking the other thief, now he's addressing, he's addressing Jesus the king. Notice how he says it. And he said to Jesus, Lord, that's a term of, of recognizing something else in Jesus than just a criminal, right? Something else than just a pretender. Lord, that, that word means master, right? He says, master, remember me when you come into where? Your kingdom. What? Do you hear the prayer of faith? <laughs> he recognizes Jesus as more than a pretender. He recognizes him as his master. And then he says, remember me when... As if to know that this moment in time is not the end of Jesus' story. The thief on the cross says, hey, there's going to be more for you after this. So in that hereafter, remember me. Remember me where? When you come into your kingdom, who does this thief recognize Jesus to be? The king. Your kingdom, right? Completely different than every other voice that is heard around the foot of the cross. The thief sees beyond the blood. He sees beyond the stripes, the crown of thorns. He sees beyond the physical and verbal abuses. And he sees in Jesus his king. And then in response, Jesus speaks as a king. So in verse 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's the voice of the king. <laughs> and I know a lot of times, you know, our, our focus, if you're, a, you know, if you're an Adventist who is understanding of, of you know, the, the chronology and experience of, uh, of what happens after death, you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, hey, the comma is in the wrong place here, right? Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. We know that Jesus wasn't in paradise that day, right? I mean, in John chapter 20, verse 17, after the resurrection, when Mary tries to embrace Jesus, Jesus rebukes her almost and says, hey, whoa, 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 I haven't yet ascended to my Father. Don't cling to me. And that was on Resurrection Sunday, right? So, obviously, on this Friday, Jesus is not talking about being in paradise that day, but he is saying to him on this day. What's so significant about this day? Well, 
on this day, in real time, when all present circumstances seem to testify to the complete opposite of what the thief on the cross was confessing with his mouth. On this day, when it seems like all that you've just acknowledged about me is, is foolishness, on this day, I'm giving you assurance. Right? I love that assurance, that promise, that certainty. And what is the assurance? You will be with me in paradise. Amen. You know, the term paradise, it actually, it's a, it's a word that it, it refers to an enclosed garden. And in the Greek version or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's actually used in reference to the Garden of Eden. That's what it's a reference back to. In other words, Jesus, when he's talking about the hereafter, he's, he's casting it in terms of Eden being restored. Yeah. And this is why Revelation, you know, it portrays the picture of the new heavens and the new earth in terms of the Garden of Eden. It's, it's kind of reflecting back. It's connecting the bookends of the Bible itself, the first two chapters of Genesis with the last two chapters of Revelation. It's, it's really beautiful. And the reality is that what made the garden such a garden, by the way, the, the name Eden, the Garden of Eden, it's Garden of Pleasure. It's full satisfaction. But what made that garden so pleasurable, so satisfying, was not just the amazing fruit, although I imagine that was awesome, <laughs> and it will be, but what makes Eden restored so precious and satisfying and pleasurable is being with Jesus. Right? That's what the assurance is from the king. You will be with me in paradise. He doesn't just say, hey, you're going to be in paradise. The assurance, the hope, the pleasure, the reward is being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. That's why Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist says it like this. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the voice of the king giving assurance of the kingdom. Not just being there, but being with him there. Yeah. So we've got the voice of the prophet, the mediator, the king. But then this final red letter phrase in Luke 23, Jesus speaks with the voice of the Son. The voice of the Son. Let's start in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour. There was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Yeah, so much significance there. The red letters in verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Yeah. Even to the very end, to his last breath, Jesus leans into the assurance of knowing that he belongs to the Father. He leans into the assurance of his divine identity, especially when others were, were challenging that identity three times over. If you are the, if you are, if you are. Really reminiscent of the wilderness temptations, right? Just all comes back here at the cross. 
But to the very end, Jesus knows that his identity of belonging to the Father is one of belonging as a precious child. And I tell you what, I mean, this week I had the opportunity, uh, man, when, when was it that your mom's birthday was, Siggy? You're praising God for your mom. And that, I don't know if you remember. <laughs> but yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, during our prayer time, Siggy was praising God for uh, having the best mom or something like that. And that just like, really reminded me, yeah, I need to reach out to my parents. <laughs> and so this week, just had a really precious opportunity just to FaceTime with my mom and dad. And I don't do it as regularly as I should. If you're listening, mom and dad, let's, let's yeah, anyways, okay. But, um, but it reminds me that when you are a child and you know that you are loved, that makes all the difference, you know? When you are a child and you know that you're cared for, that support isn't an if, that there's no contingency upon that, you can rest. You can really rest. And you can trust. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Father. And then he says this confession of trust. I Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Like my human flesh, my physical body, it's got nothing left anymore. But my very breath, my livelihood, all that I am, I'm entrusting to you and to your care. And if, if you've got one of these Bibles with footnotes and cross-references, you'll notice that these words, into your hands I commit my spirit, again, Jesus is doing, you know what he's doing? He's quoting from Scripture. Last week he was quoting from Psalm 22. This time he's quoting from Psalm 31. And if you want, you go ahead and just flip there. Keep a, keep a finger here in Luke 23. But where is it? Psalm, Psalm 31. Again, just another highlight of the faith of Jesus under the most extreme of adversity and suffering. And this psalm, when you read through this psalm, I mean, it's, it's really a song of trust. It's a song of surrender. I'll start in verse 1. Just, I had the wrong one here. Psalm 31, verse 1. It says, In you, O Lord, I put my what? I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Man, can you just imagine Jesus just meditating on this? In those closing minutes, closing hours of his life. And then notice verse 4. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. And here's the prayer. Into your hand I commit my spirit. And notice this, this note of victory. You have redeemed me, O Lord of God of truth. Hmm. I mean, it keeps going. You see a little bit more just to kind of uh, help us understand how this psalm really resonates with Jesus' experience. Let's go to verse 13. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I do what? I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. This is the prayer of Jesus. 
a trusting child, surrendering all to the Father's care. Ah, one more verse here in this psalm before we turn away. Verse 22. For I said in my haste, I am cut off before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Parents know the cry of their children. <laughs> Can't ignore that. And Jesus, a trusting child, knows that his father hears him. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Hear the voice of the Son. Not trying to assert his sonship so that others know, hey, do you know who you're killing here? No. But hear the voice of the Son modeling for us what it truly means to be a child of God. It means no matter what's going on around me, I know who I am because I know who he is. It means trusting all, surrendering all to God to the very last breath. So at the cross, do you hear the voice of Jesus? <laughs> the voice of the prophet calling us to repentance, calling us to self-awareness, calling us to mourn over the things that we ought to mourn over sin and all its curses at the cross do you do you hear the voice of jesus the priest jesus the mediator praying for your forgiveness even when we don't even know to pray for it ourselves man at the cross we can hear the voice of jesus the king assuring us of a place in paradise opening us a opening to us, I should say, a kingdom that this world has no resonance with. A kingdom that he's granting to us, a kingdom of oneness with him in the earth made new. At the cross, we can hear the voice of the Son modeling trust and surrender for all who have been called children of God. That's us. Praise the Lord. So a simple appeal today as we hear these red letters. Will you look to Jesus at the cross and accept him as our prophet? Accept him as our mediator? Accept him as our king? Accept him as the son of God and thereby letting us be called sons and daughters of God? Will you receive that today? Yeah? Amen. Amen. I just want to invite you to accept that invitation. You know, I... I Maybe we can assume that just because we're in church, we've already accepted that. The Lord, I, I, I've told the Lord, I don't want to work on that assumption. As long as I have opportunity to share and lift up the name of Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to accept that. To accept the gift of his repentance, the gift of his forgiveness, and I would also say the power to forgive others. That we too as we receive forgiveness, would have the power to pray the prayer that Jesus prayed for others too. That we would receive his gift of paradise in his presence and ultimately to receive the gift of becoming a trusting, surrendering child of the King. Yeah. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. God, we're all standing because we want you to be our King. We want you to remember us not for what, what, what we've done, 
but because of what Jesus has done. And we're standing here with Mike, thanking you for the ways that you've worked in his life to prepare him to make a decision, to take a stand on the side of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we're all looking to you today as the one who has forsaken so that we could be forgiven. I want to pray a special prayer for Mike today. As he he makes this decision concrete through the act of baptism, that you would surround him with tokens of love and mercy, the assurances that he is a child of the King. Lord, I pray also against the attacks of the enemy that may try to distract or dissuade him from resting in that assurance day by day. Clothe him with the full armor of God. And may we as a church family rally around and hold up our shields of faith with and for him. For others who may be making this decision, whether online or watching this later on, or maybe even here standing, but are still thinking and processing that decision, I pray, God, that you would prepare them for your perfect time for that. Again, we thank you. We recognize you as King And we just want to rest in trust. The assurance of the one who gave all. To you, we are giving all. In Jesus' name, let the family say, Amen and Amen.